I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel. We're going to be looking today at chapters 16 and 17. It's also printed for you in your bulletin. We had to reduce the font size a little bit to get all of it on there. We've got a lot of verses we're looking at today. We'll be looking at chapters 16 and 17. I would encourage you to listen as I read to you from God's Word. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, a hundred bunches of raisins, a hundred of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, Why have you brought these? Ziba answered, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and the summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, And where is your master's son? Ziba said to the king, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem. For he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord the king. When David came to Baharim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shammai, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shammai said, as he cursed, Get out! Get out, you man of blood, you worthless man! The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, behold, my son, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite leave him alone and let him curse for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road while Shammai went along on the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan and there he refreshed himself. Now Absalom and all the people, all the people, the men of Israel came to Jerusalem and Ahithophel with him. And when Hushai, the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, long live the king. Long live the king. And Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, No, for whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. And again, whom shall I serve? Should it not be his son? As I have served your father, so I will serve you. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give your counsel, what shall we do? Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. 
Now in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and by Absalom. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, let me choose 12,000 men and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic and all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king and I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Then Absalom said, call Hushai the archite also. And let us hear what he has to say. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Thus has Ahithophel spoken. Shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. Then Hushai said to Absalom, This time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. Hushai said, You know that your father and his men are mighty men, and that they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is is an expert at war. He will not spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he has hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. And as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, whoever hears it will say, there has been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Then even the valiant men whose heart is like the heart of a lion will utterly melt with fear. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man and that those who are with him are valiant men. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba as the sand by the sea for multitude and that you go to battle in person. So we shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground and of him and all the men with him not one will be left. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city and we shall drag it into the valley until not even a pebble is to be found there. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. Then Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, Thus and so did Ahithophel counsel Absalom and the elders of Israel, and thus and so have I counseled. Now therefore send quickly and tell David, Do not stay tonight at the fords of the wilderness, but by all means pass over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. Now Jonathan and Ahimaaz were waiting at Enrogel. A female servant was to go and tell them, And they were to go and tell King David, for they were not to be seen entering the city. But a young man saw them and told Absalom. So both of them went away quickly and came to the house of a man at Baharim, who had a well in his courtyard. And they went down into it, and the woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and scattered grain on it, and nothing was known of it. And when Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house, they said, Where are... Ahimaaz and Jonathan. And the woman said to them, They have gone over the brook of water. And when they had sought and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. After they had gone, the men came out up out of the well and went and told King David. They said to David, Arise and go quickly out of the water, for thus and so has Ahithophel counseled against you. Then David arose and all the people who were with him, and they crossed the Jordan by daybreak. Not one was left who had not crossed the Jordan. 
When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and went off home to his own city. He set his house in order and hanged himself, and he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. Let's pray together. Father, we come to this portion of your word and we want to see what you would have us to understand from it. So we pray for your spirit to open our eyes, to open our hearts, and that you would take your word and press it deeply into us. Help us to learn what it looks like to live in your kingdom. Help us to be reminded of the hope that we have because of your gospel of grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you may have heard... Up the road in Cannon Falls, things got a little bit sticky this week. It was about 7 a.m. on Monday morning, this past Monday morning, a railroad tanker car exploded. In that tanker car was molasses. And with the explosion, molasses began raining down all over Cannon Falls, covering at least a half mile square area. The city sent out street sweepers and vacuum trucks to help with the cleanup. And because of the rain that we got early in the week, most of the molasses that had spread out around the area was dissolved. Some of the areas around the explosion site, they they said, actually had molasses piled up six to eight feet tall. Most of the cleanup took place and was completed this week, but the authorities have said that they're expecting phone calls to come in over the next few weeks and months as people find molasses in all kinds of unusual uh, and out-of-the-way places uh, in throughout the town of Cannon Falls. Now, when something like that happens, you really hope that somebody knows what to do. You really hope at that moment, somebody knows the steps that need to be taken in order to fix the problem. It's not as as molasses is raining down from the sky that you want to be at your computer Googling, how do we deal with this problem, right? And in that way, perhaps it's a little bit like the Christian life. When things get sticky, when our circumstances become difficult, when temptation is fierce, when persecution seems to be on the rise... As Christians, we want to know what to do. We want to know how we're supposed to live in the midst of those circumstances. How are we supposed to deal with those things? How are we to be faithful and to be strong in the faith? And if possible, we don't want to have to try to figure that out in the midst of those problems and difficulties. One of the things that the Bible teaches us is that it helps us to see as God's people, what does it look like? To faithfully follow our king and to be prepared when the sticky situations of life take place. It is no doubt easier to see that perhaps in the New Testament letters or maybe in the Gospels uh, that describe Jesus' life. As, as that section of the Bible gives us very direct commands and imperatives about how we are supposed to live. But even in the Old Testament, the stories, the narratives... We get to see how we are to live and how, not, and how not to live. And we also see the hope that we are to have in the gospel. As we're continuing in our study of Second Samuel this morning, 
Uh, We're continuing in a passage that has lots of different people involved, lots of names that are mentioned, lots of things that are taking place. We're not going to be able to cover it all uh, today, everything in these two chapters today. But what we will see, I hope, is that we'll see several things that we can learn about what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. Of what faithful living looks like for God's people, not just then, but God's people now. The Westminster Confession of Faith chapter on Scripture says that the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory and for man's salvation and faith in life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. That is, that the Bible tells us everything that we need to know about God's glory, about salvation, and about how we're supposed to live In this world. So today, what can we learn from these two chapters in 2 Samuel about what it looks like for us to live in the kingdom of God today? We're going to see three things. First, what it looks like to live with humility and hope because of the gospel. Secondly, that we are to be living with a courageous obedience even in the midst of what could be significant opposition. And thirdly, That we ought to live with a steadfast trust in the reality of the sovereignty of God. So first of all, what does it look like to live in the kingdom of God? Well, it means being filled with humility and hope because of the gospel. Look at verses 5 through 14. Notice what David shows us about how we can act in the face of opposition and even in the face of our own sin. We, We have this story that David was coming out of this or he was coming to this town called Baharim. And as he did, there was a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shammai, the son of Gera. And as this man came out and confronted David and confronted all of David's people that were with him, we see very quickly that he has an issue with David. And it's not just an issue. This man is angry at David. In fact, it's not just anger. It's an extreme hatred for David. And he accuses David. And the accusation is basically this. David, you are responsible for the bloodshed in the household of Saul. Now that was a false accusation. That was not true. David was not guilty of what Shammai was saying that he was guilty of. And so, because this person was accusing the Lord's anointed falsely, David would have been justified to allow his servant Abishai to go do what he had asked to do. To basically take care of the problem. To remove Shammai and his cursing. So it's interesting to see David's approach. What did David say? Basically he said this. Let him alone. Let him be. Let him curse. Let him bring shame upon me. Let him throw rocks at me. Now why would David say that? Well, we're actually told in verses 10 through 12, several different reasons that David had in his mind to let this man go on with his cursing. In verse 10, he says basically that maybe the Lord sent this man to curse me. David probably has in his mind back in chapter 12, verses 10 through 12, where the Lord had told David that, yes, you're forgiven for your sins against Bathsheba and Uriah, but there will be consequences as a result And David may be thinking back to that time and thinking, you know, maybe the Lord sent this guy to come and bring curses upon me. And if that's the case, if the Lord sent this man, who are we to tell him to stop? That was David's first rationale for why they needed to let him be. 
But you can see another thought that was in David's mind in verse 11. He basically says this. It, it's really understandable that this man would hate me and that would bring these curses because if my own son is after me, if my own son hates me and is cursing me and trying to, to eliminate me, then certainly a son of the house that I took over, a son of a Benjamite, a, a son of the house of Saul, it makes sense that they would, he would be angry with me. But there's another reason that I think David gives here, and it's in verse 12. Verse 12 says, David speaking, It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me, and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. Now, you may have a note in your Bibles there. Verse 12, there's, there's actually a little bit of question about how it should be translated. The way that the ESV that we're reading here translated, it's, it's, it's okay translation. It's, it's legitimate. That he's, David says, you know, it may be that the Lord will look on the wrong that's done to me. But that can also be translated the affliction that is being done to me. Or it can also be translated my iniquity, my sin. So in a sense, what David is saying here is that Shammai should be left alone because, yes, he's accusing me and it's false accusation, but it's actually, I'm actually a lot worse than what he's accusing me of. If, if Shammai actually knew the iniquity of my heart, the sins in my heart, what I have done, the, the sins with Bathsheba and against Uriah and the other soldiers, indeed, the sins against the Lord... It would be far worse than what he's even accusing me of. I want you to notice that David here is showing us what humility looks like, but he also is showing us what hope looks like. Because if you look at verse 12, he not only says that maybe the Lord will look on my affliction, look on my iniquity, but what? And give me and be good to me. It could also be translated, be merciful to me, be gracious to me. Who knows, he says, maybe the Lord will look on this affliction. He will look on my iniquity. He will look on my sin and he will be gracious to me. David was trusting in a God that he knew showed mercy and grace to sinners. So here's the first takeaway for us today. David's giving us a good example of how we are to live in the kingdom of God. That because of God's grace, because of God's grace to us, we should be people who are humble and hopeful. We ought to be people who are humble. When we're in a situation where we are perhaps falsely accused or hated or made fun of or put down, it isn't necessary for us to retaliate and to fight back and get revenge. David is giving us another way. Instead, in those circumstances, in those situations, we can ask ourselves, how is God at work in this situation? What is the Lord trying to teach me in this situation? And we can also have an understanding like David that if whatever this person who is not liking me or hating me or even bringing accusation against me, if they truly knew my heart, they would know that it's actually far worse than what they're accusing me of. We can respond with humility rather than returning hatred for hatred. And what will enable us to do that, particularly because it's so hard to respond with humility in those kinds of moments, what will enable us to do that is the hope that we have in the gospel. If you are here or online and you are a Christian, then recognize that you don't have to say what David said. David said, maybe the Lord 
will show his kindness to me. But if you're in Christ, it's not maybe. If you are in Christ, you can say, I know that the Lord has been gracious to me. We know with certainty that the Lord has looked on us and is gracious and merciful for the sake of Jesus, because of Jesus. A thousand years before Jesus walked on the earth, David was given enough knowledge about God's grace and forgiveness that he could say what he did in verse 12. So how much more so for us? We know the full story. We know the exact way that God has showed his grace and his forgiveness to us through his son and our savior. And so that enables us to live with this kind of humility. That we would understand our sin and we would understand God's grace. And because we know what is true of us in the gospel, it frees us up to be both humble and hopeful. So here's the first thing that we see about living in the kingdom. It looks like living with humility and hope because of the gospel. But there's a second thing here as well. Living in the kingdom means living with a courageous obedience, even in the midst of great opposition. If you look at chapter 16 again, beginning in verse 15, really from there all the way to the middle of chapter 17, we have kind of the the bulk of the story of the passages we're looking at today. And, And the focus of this part of the story is Absalom getting advice and getting counsel from two advisors. The first is from Ahithophel. Now remember, he had been one of David's trusted advisors and friends. He had betrayed David, and he had defected to Absalom's side when the coup took place. And we know from this story, as we'll see in just a minute, but also from other places in Scripture, that this man was a master military strategist. He was cunning and ruthless. He was skilled in finding ways to defeat his enemies, and he was very intelligent. After Absalom had moved into Jerusalem, had taken over the city, and was residing in the royal palace, he turned to his trusted advisor Ahithophel for guidance. We see that in verse 20. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give your counsel. What shall we do? Now, notice Ahithophel came up with a two-part plan. The first part is in verses 21 through 23. And in essence, what he said is that Absalom, you should go in and take over the concubines that David had left in the palace. Now, that would have been a very common practice in the ancient world. But it was almost always simply a paper transaction. The concubines would have represented allegiances and treaties with various leaders and countries around them. And so for the new king to come in and take over those concubines was to solidify his coming into rulership. Usually it was just a paper transaction just to make things official. But notice here, Ahithophel proposes something more. He proposes for Absalom to physically take the concubines and to do it in such a way that the entire kingdom would know about it. He was doing that strategically. He was doing it so that David would know how far Absalom was willing to go. That he would declare to David that there was no possibility of reconciliation ever happening such that he would become, as we hear here told, a stench in the nostrils of David. And we read that Absalom took the advice and did what Ahithophel had proposed. That was part one. Part two of the plan is basically what we see in chapter 17. 
part two was that they would hunt down David and kill him. And so here we see Ahithophel's military and strategic intelligence. Verse 1 of chapter 17, he says, Let me go and raise up an overwhelming force, and I will lead them out, and we will immediately launch an attack against David. Verse 2, we will use the element of surprise and we will strike when the enemy is weary and weak. And verses 2 and 3, we will hunt down and kill only David and then we will bring all the rest of the people back to you, Absalom. And they certainly will be in allegiance with you. It was a masterful plan. Humanly speaking, it almost certainly would have been successful. As I was reading uh, his strategy that he unfolds for uh, Absalom, the words that came to my mind were shock and awe. Let me, let me unleash this plan of shock and awe, Absalom, and we will be successful. Now I want you to notice something very weird happens in verse 5. Some, for some reason, we're not told why, Absalom decided that he wanted to get a second opinion. Now, this was Ahithophel. This was a trusted advisor. This was a military genius. Why would you ask for a second opinion? It doesn't make sense. But that's what he did. Verse 5, he calls for Hushai the Archite to come and to give a second opinion. Remember, Hushai was David's friend. He had showed up on the Mount of Olives last chapter. We saw David there on the Mount of Olives and Hushai showed up just as David had been praying for the Lord to somehow undermine the counsel of Ahithophel to Absalom. And there was the answer, Hushai. And so Hushai was sent back by David to Jerusalem and he was to basically look for the opportunity to undermine Ahithophel's counsel. And here we're seeing it unfold. Notice, Absalom not only asked Hushai for his opinion, but he actually told Hushai what Ahithophel had said. And then we get Hushai's response. It's in verses 7 through 13. It's actually quite long. It's much longer than Ahithophel's strategy that he gave to Absalom. And essentially, this is what Hushai says. You know, Ahithophel is usually right. He's usually spot on with his plan. But this time, he's not right. His, his guidance to you, Absalom, is misguided. He is, uh, he, he's not understanding how strong David is. His mighty men... And so here, Hushai is probably exaggerating David's strength. Hushai would have known David was discouraged, he was weary, the, the men were probably weary, and so he's, he's exaggerating David's power and David's, uh, David's strength of the, of the mighty men. But he's basically saying that Hithophel has, has undervalued, he has misjudged the strength of David and his army and David's ability to hide. And then Hushai went on to appeal to Absalom's own vanity. What we need to do, he said, is you need to gather all of Israel together and then you lead the troops out in all of your glory and surely you will be successful. One commentator said that the speech of, of Hushai here is masterful in its construction, powerful in its effect. It simultaneously discredits Ahithophel, undermines Absalom's confidence, magnifies the king's worst fears and buys David precious time to escape and regroup. In the end, it lays the foundation for David's return to Jerusalem. 
And there at the beginning of verse 14, we see the result. Absalom liked and accepted Hushai's counsel as better than Ahithophel. In other words, he had been successful in what David had sent him to do. I want you to also notice that after Hushai finished undermining Ahithophel, as David had told him to do, he went and did all of the other work that David asked him to do, which was basically, we see in verses 15 and following, he made sure to get word back to David so that David would know what was going on. Now here's the second takeaway for us today. David had sent Hushai back to Jerusalem and into the presence of Absalom on a mission. The mission was to confound and undermine the counsel of Ahithophel and then to get word back to David on what was going to happen. Hushai did all of that with the very real possibility that he was going to be harmed or perhaps even killed. If Absalom had figured out what was going on or even if he just didn't like Hushai's counsel, it's likely he would have been killed on the spot. Hushai took up the orders of his rightful king, the Lord's anointed king, King David, and he followed them faithfully, even at the risk of his own well-being. So do you see the takeaway? If you're in Christ, you are the servant of the greater and more ultimate king, King Jesus. And we are called to follow Him and to love Him and to obey Him and to do what He says and to follow where He leads even if there's a great cost to us. Which, by the way, the Bible tells us will absolutely be the case. To follow the Lord Jesus and to be faithful to Him will cost us something. What if being faithful and honest at work means that you don't get promoted and move up the ladder as quickly as others? What if being extremely and radically generous and helping others means that your life isn't quite as comfortable as it could be otherwise? What if shining the light of God's word through your words and through your actions means that people make fun of you or dismiss you? What if holding to the truth of God's word and what it says about sexuality and gender means that you get canceled by a pagan culture? For those that are married, what if loving and serving your spouse means that you have to deny yourself and selflessly serve your spouse even if you don't get anything in return? Young people. What if following what the Bible says about obeying your parents means that you don't get to do some things that you want to do or you don't get to have some of the things that you want to have? Single folks, what if obedience to God's word about only marrying in the Lord, only marrying another Christian means that you have to patiently and painfully wait, perhaps for a long time? Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are followers of King Jesus. And because we are, we are called to follow him with courageous obedience, even in the face of opposition, even if it means denying ourselves. And even if it means that it costs us something, which it certainly is going to. The question is, are we willing to follow our king no matter what the cost is? 
There's a third and final thing that I want us to see here about what it looks like to live in the kingdom. And that is that we ought to have a steadfast trust in the sovereignty of God. I said earlier in verse 5 of chapter 17 that it was very weird that uh, Absalom decided to get a second opinion and to call into Hushai. That we aren't told why and that we're not sure why, but that's actually not true. Verse 14 tells us what happened and why. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. There's the answer. That's the reason why Absalom went for a second opinion. It's because the Lord was at work. God was at work accomplishing his sovereign and good purposes and plan. It wasn't just luck. It wasn't just by chance that Hushai was in the right place at the right time and that Absalom called on him and then listened to what he said and did what he said. It was because God was at work. It's because his plan is right and good and he is sovereign and he always accomplishes his purposes. We see that working out in the rest of chapter 17 as Hushai needed to get the word back to David. And there was a plan set up. He was to take the word to these two priests, Zadok and Abiathar. And then these two priests were to take it, the word to their sons in this town called Enrogel. And then David, they would then take the word to David. But the problem, a problem came up because one of Absalom's servants saw what was happening, told Absalom. And so Absalom sent some men out to hunt for these two men that were trying to get word to David. But what we see here is that the Lord provided protection for them. The two men hid in a well in, a ground, in the ground that was covered with a blanket. And then Absalom's servants trying to find those two men were told to search elsewhere. And eventually Jonathan and Ahimaaz got the word to David. And as we're going to see in the coming weeks, David was saved and protected as a result. What is that a picture of? It's a picture of evil men seeking to thwart the will of God. And yet God was at work. God is accomplishing His good and His sovereign purposes and plans. Sometimes He does that miraculously. Sometimes He does it just through ordinary means. Sometimes He uses second causes, but He always does it in such a way that He is not the author of sin or evil. He is always righteous in what He does. Our Westminster Confession of Faith chapter on God's decrees talks about this. It says that God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so as neither as thereby neither is God the author of sin nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away but rather established. And we see that in the Bible as well. In chapter 50 of Genesis, Joseph speaking to his brothers after they had sold him into slavery in Egypt, thinking that they were going to get rid of him. But over time, Joseph was raised up in power in Egypt. And the Lord used Joseph to save the Israelites, to save the family as they were able to come to Egypt during the famine. And as Joseph addressed his brothers, he said, This thing that you did to me, you meant it for evil against me. But God meant it for good. We see in this passage that David was saved from Ahithophel's evil plan because God was at work accomplishing his sovereign grace. And in this story, 
we see the foreshadowing of God's greatest work that men meant for evil, but that God used for our good. Ahithophel in the Old Testament is the equivalent of Judas in the New Testament. In fact, their deaths were even very similar. And we read in John chapter 13 as Jesus was speaking to his disciples and talking about the fact that someone was going to betray him. Judas was going to betray him. Jesus quotes from Psalm 41. It's a psalm that David wrote. And it's a psalm in which he actually references Ahithophel. But where the evil plan against David failed, the evil plan of Judas against Jesus was successful. But as Peter points out in Acts, the Jesus that evil and lawless men crucified and killed was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God was at work through even the most horrific and evil act in the history of the world, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And through it, he accomplished our redemption and our adoption into his family forever. So here's the final takeaway. If we can so clearly see that God is at work to save David. And we can so clearly see that God was at work sending his own son to the cross for our benefit. Then in the midst of our own dark days, when evil seems so prevalent, even that it might feel like it's advancing and winning the day, we can trust that God is still in control. God is still in charge. He is still at work and he will always accomplish his sovereign and good purposes. That doesn't mean that life will be easy. Perhaps God's sovereign and good plan for us is to go through a season of difficulty and even persecution. Perhaps for his church to be persecuted in ways that we haven't ever experienced in this country. But even in those moments, we won't lose hope because we know that God is at work even in that in those ways. Gordon Ketty is a pastor and, and Bible commentator and as he was Writing about this passage, he said this. That we are so easily depressed by evil in others and in ourselves is more a measure of the deficiencies of our own discernment and grasp of the scriptural view of things than an expression of some inescapable psychological necessity of our humanity. The truth which the Lord has spoken to us for us to believe and to feed upon is that the wicked have their reward in the transient enjoyment of their rebellion against God. Their reward is, a flee, is, is as fleeting as the sin itself. The continuing emergence of fresh evils should not keep us from believing that much of what afflicts us today goes down to destruction before too long. And in spite of it all, the Lord really is in control. We need not to be afraid of the conspiracies of counselors in high places, whether in Jerusalem or Moscow or Washington or even closer to home. The Ahithophels of the world cannot vanquish the armies of the living God, not by Marxism, materialism or any other ism. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if you are a servant of King Jesus, then we must trust that King Jesus is at work. He is in control. He is accomplishing his perfect will and he is doing it for his own glory and for the good of his people. And although that does not mean that we should just accept whatever wrong or seemingly evil thing that happens to us, that we shouldn't speak out against injustice and injustice and unrighteousness. What it does mean is that Christians should not lose hope even as we do those things. 
not driven to despair or to return evil for evil. This is part of what it means to live faithfully in the kingdom of God today, that we would be humble and hopeful because of the gospel of God's grace and mercy to us through Jesus, that we would be courageously obedient to our king, even in the face of difficulty and opposition and even at great cost to ourselves, and that we would steadfastly trust in the sovereign and good purposes of the Lord and rest in his sovereignty. Let's pray together. Father, help us to see wonderful things from your word, this portion of it, every portion of it. And as we meditate on these stories, we pray, Father, that you would be at work through the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that was at work causing these words to be written down and preserving them all these years that we might read them. That same Holy Spirit would be at work in us, forming us, shaping us to be the people who would live in your kingdom in a way that brings you glory and honor. We pray that you would do this for your sake, but also, Father, for our good. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.